HEC Breakthroughs. A knowledge at HEC Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to HEC Breakthroughs, your monthly podcast by the Knowledge at HEC team. Breakthroughs highlight some of the best research coming out of our business school, as well as its impact on society at large. I'm Daniel Brown, the school's head of research communication. My name is Itza Gilboa. I've been doing decision theory, mostly under uncertainty, since I graduated, which was something like 35 years ago. So, long time in the business of writing formal models. Yes, it's that time of the year again. The annual workshop dealing with decision sciences called DT, which will kick off on July the 10th. Three days organized by HEC Paris, which aims at promoting dialogues between theory, experimental findings, and applications of decision-making. That's what the acronym DT actually stands for. This is the brainchild of one of the school's senior professors, Itzhak Gilboa, who you heard introducing himself a moment ago. Last year, Itzhak was ranked by Stanford University in the world's top six theoretical economists. That ranking was based on his impact, publications, and citations. We'll be exploring some of Itzhak's ideas on predicting trends in times of uncertainty. But first, I asked the professor of decision sciences how he explains the growing popularity of a DT workshop he co-founded in 2013. Well, I, I believe and hope that uh, these things are trying to get together people from different uh, fields. What we're trying to do as much as we can is also to get people to deal with more applications, whether it's real business applications or government applications or um, applications to scientific models, and to put an emphasis on a nice balance <clears throat> so that it'll be interesting to for people from different fields to be there. We also try to add in the uh, a theme, so every year there's a different theme that we're trying to focus on to try to identify trends, what you know seems to be more interesting and people can relate to it and be exposed to that. So I hope it's getting some attention, yeah. It's at Gilboa in his typically understated style. Along with fellow HEC researchers Mohamed Abdelawi and Brian Hill, he's organized a DT workshop featuring top academics Salvador Mascareñas and Tali Regev. They'll be discussing their approaches to question and answer dynamics in reasoning on the one hand and languages and future-oriented economic behavior on the other. But what of Itzhak Gilboa himself? His main interest is in decision under uncertainty and decision models whereby uncertainty can't be quantified. That's what's called non-Bayesian decision models, as opposed to the Bayesian approach which assigns probabilities based on experience or best guesses. Itzhak questions these axioms or self-evident truths. He believes his research can help answer unforeseen crises like the war in Ukraine, health pandemics, or the climate crisis. These are called black swans. I asked him to describe his approach. The um, main point uh, that uh, we're trying to we're debating is whether or not any uncertainty can be quantified by probabilities. Uh, this uh, debate is uh, as old as the notion of probability. It goes back to the mid-17th uh, century. And the forefathers had these opposing views. Bayes uh, used some probability in one of his arguments. 
trying to prove that God exists. And uh, the Bayesian approach has since been called after him, namely assuming that any uncertainty can be quantified probabilistically. So if you don't have objective probabilities, you call them subjective because you and I can have different probabilities, but this is the only way to think about it rationally. Uh, it has certainly not been the only way to think about it, and in statistics it has not been the main one uh, for most of the uh, time. Uh, but economists and related social scientists doing formal models accepted it as the standard around the 1950s, thanks mostly to the work of Leonard Savage, that convinced economists that this is the only rational way to go about things. And... Uh, I belong to the group of people who say, well, that's maybe a bit too idealized. First, it doesn't necessarily correspond to the way people um, actually behave, which is something that many economists are willing to accept along the lines of behavioral economics, but also that it might not be the only rational way to think about it. What we're trying to do is to develop alternative models of thinking about it and Part of the black swans issue that you mentioned is that, you know, um, one approach that says, oh, something happened that no one predicted, or, okay, post hoc, someone had predicted, but most people, most experts have, have not. And you say, well, okay, so there's a black swan, let's move on. But when you look at the collection, you see there are quite a lot of black swans overall. Okay, so sometimes they come from the geopolitical arena, sometimes it could be an epidemic, so sometimes it could be financial. Uh, but there are many surprises, and the non-Bayesian approach that we're trying to promote says, well, maybe we should admit that we don't really know everything. So it's a bit more humble approach that says some probabilities we cannot quite quantify, and let's admit that this is the case. Yeah, it's a kind of middle road that you're suggesting, and you want to use mathematical decisions in these uncertain uh, circumstances. What parts of these approaches do you take and how do you combine them mathematically? Well, the mathematical models uh, have been partly around. Some of them are not, some are new. What is also very important are the mathematical results that show properties of these models because that's the way that economists sort of convince each other that this is the right model to use or not. So in particular, the Bayesian approach has really been there since the very beginning, but many people didn't think that this is the only way to think about it until Savage came up with this axiomatic system. When you look at the axiom, they're so convincing. And then, poof, you have a result. And the result says, well, the only way that these hold is if you behave this way, and people were sort of convinced by that. So the kind of results that we have are along these lines, trying to show nice properties of your decision model and what follow from these properties. So what we call axiomatization, finding the axioms that fit to something. Some of it is a discussion of the axioms, which is more intuitive, coming up with examples of where they hold, where they might not hold. Sometimes the discussions are a little bit more philosophical about, you know, why something might seem compelling and it's not. Uh, but all of this is part of the rhetorical issue of how we convince um, fellow economists whether this is the right model to use as a standard of rationality or as a model of how other people behave. In an increasingly complex and volatile business environment, informed decision-making has never been more important. The term black swan event describes a situation that creates an impact organizations fear the most. 
an impact that goes beyond the scope and scale of anything they had seen or forecast. The magnitude of it is shocking. What motivated you, uh, Ita Gilboa, to plunge into this field uh, 35 years ago? I think in hindsight, I can find many things. So f to begin with, it was a, a very a field with nice mathematics, challenging but also elegant, uh, which has something to do with life, with real life. And you could see these examples in every day. So making decisions is not something that is foreign to us. We all make decisions all the time. And you can think about your own decisions and whether it's career choice or things of, of this type. And the government decisions, whether it's uh, economic or political wars and things like that. So decisions are there all the time, uh, often under very severe uncertainty, in the sense that you don't really know what the probabilities are. You don't know what would happen if you engage in um, this uh, war or not, what would happen in the financial crisis. Today we talk about epidemics. So it's very important, very real life. At the same time, it has a very nice theory. And uh, I think this is what made me uh, fall in love with the field. And, um, and that love uh, is maintained by, by what? Uh, well, <laughs> right, but it's, uh, I think it's a very exciting period to be in the field in the sense that the foundations that we have are amazing. I mean, they do go back to Pascal and Bayes and Laplace and, and some amazing minds that uh, lay the foundations in the 17th, 18th century. And there was this wonderful developments in the mid-20th century between decision theory, game theory, microeconomics, operations research. There's this very beautiful, very elegant field of research. Things also intertwined very nicely. So it's really a formidable intellectual structure. But then Kahneman, Tversky and their followers, so I'm um, actually uh, the privilege of, of knowing uh, Amos Tversky and Danny Kahneman early on, and even at a time when they were not so popular among economists, and some economists might not have heard their names, but they kept uh, showing that practically nothing works. As Amos Tversky used to say, show me the axiom or the irregularity, I'll design the experiment that violates it, and it wasn't just bragging. I mean, really delivered. I mean, they they had these experiments that you don't even need to run. You see the point. You see that something doesn't work. But something doesn't work here and something doesn't work there. And actually nothing works. Okay, So you have this tension between this very nice mathematical structure on the one hand. And then you have the experiments that show that things don't work. And the question is, what do you do? And how do you bridge this gap between theory and reality? So I try to say that there are two ways to go about it. One is to make the theory closer to reality, which is basically what behavioral economics is trying to do. And another direction is to maybe preach the theory and convince people that they want to be more, quote-unquote, rational decision makers, namely that in their own eyes they can make decisions better. So there is also an aspect here of contribution to society in terms of teaching people how to deal with conditional probabilities and things like that. By the way, in the pandemic, I thought that we actually saw this practice. One of the classical examples, when you teach probability, everyone sees that, that people tend to confuse probabilities of, say, A given B with B given A. It's really not so simple, and it's easy to fall into traps. 
So um, you see these mistakes, but then you also saw people commenting on this when, you know, with the probability of complications with vaccinations and without. And you look at these conditional probabilities. There is an aspect also of educating us and making us better decision makers in our own eyes, not uh, by some kind of academic standard, but explaining to us why we want to make decisions better, why we want to analyze probabilities in, in a slightly more sophisticated way and not fall into traps. But then again, there are those things that are just idealized models that we don't necessarily want to follow because they may be very pretty on the blackboard, but uh, they're not uh, sufficiently close to our problems. So part of the interest is this tension between what should we do with these gaps or the tension between theory and reality, which should move where. And I find it quite fascinating. Making life and organization changing decisions in an accelerated time frame is challenging on its own. But to do so during an event that is so fluid, uncertain, and highly consequential has increased pressure on executives even further. The annual round of setting strategy and priorities for the year is no longer sufficient in a crisis like COVID-19. And you believe that uh, researchers in finance, political science, economics uh, that you've mentioned and policy making can benefit from using your research to understand human behavior. How are they responding? Well, um, I think there's some acceptance of the general theme in terms of what we call descriptive or positive theories, namely as ways of uh, describing how people behave. So when you see the behavior of financial markets, then many people are saying, okay, maybe this Bayesian model, assuming that everyone behaves according to some probabilities, as if they had some probabilities, uh, is probably not a perfect model. And in order to understand financial phenomena, you have to broaden it up a bit and allow for other things, in particular this notion of ambiguity, that people cannot quantify probabilities. Another thing that David Schmeidler and I uh, developed was the theory of case-based decisions, and some people are introducing these into models. But again, uh, the as long as it's in the bounded rationality part of describing how people behave, I mean, it's wonderful, it's very helpful, but sometimes I think it's not enough in the sense that even the standards of rational behavior, I think, sometimes should be changed. So... If we are thinking about decisions that people make with global warming or pandemics and we're thinking about fully rational approach, the government addresses some experts and seeks advice. The standard should not only be this one. If the standard is that the only rational advice can be based on a single probability for an, any event that we know very little about, I think people would be pushed to come up with unjustified or just taking numbers out of thin air. And that's the kind of thing that I'm trying to convince people should not be the only standard that we should allow, even when we think about perfectly rational approaches, we should allow for a broader set of models, in particular models that allow me to say, well, here, I really don't know. Mm. Okay. And there you touch sometimes this question of being modest or, or humble. And, and, you know, the failure to predict events is not a new phenomenon. 9-11, the Lehman Brothers crash, no one saw those coming. But leaders don't seem to really become more modest or humble. For you, why? And does it not touch well, these broader fields that are maybe in social sciences? 
Uh, yeah, I agree. It's it's there and something I think we should be aware of. Let's say that I think that the least confident and the most shy people probably don't become leaders, right? I mean, whatever is the system by which you elect leaders, whether it's you know, democratic or not, whatever, it elects people who feel confident. Who The notion of leadership means in particular that you can suggest that you know what you're doing, that people should follow you. Most leaders speak as if they know the truth. Okay, it's not very common for leaders to say, well, there is uncertainty and we'll figure it out together. Uh, the greatest leaders, those that we admire and those that we abhor, tend to talk to their nations in terms of there is one truth and I know it. And the system sort of selects them and uh, maybe to some extent we, the public, want this kind of apparent figure or someone who'd say, I know what truth is and follow me and maybe feel comfortable. But sometimes they cannot. And I think that in those kind of cases, we should be open to the idea that the leader is a human being and we should not put too much pressure on them to tell us what the truth is because they might not know. And if we are a bit more mature in this approach, and I believe more democratic in the sense that the leaders can share with us their uncertainty, then we can be indeed more humble and admit that certain things we do not know, certain things we cannot even put probabilities on, and that's life. Let's be in this together and try to make a decision that we will feel comfortable with. As in. Your decision theory field is broadening out. How much space is there for uh, psychology, sociology, and other social sciences? And how much are you into yourself integrating that into your research approach? So decision science is really in between, and it borrows a lot from psychology, somewhat from sociology. In this sense, even though it was developed mostly within economics, and but um, it, it's in between there. And in this sense, it's also very exciting. To me also from the early days, even though my works were mostly mathematical and also drew from general mathematical psychology, psychology has not been conquered by mathematics the same way that economics uh, has been, but it's, it definitely exists. I think that actually in the broader range of social sciences, there's more room for a proliferation of models. Um, when you think about uh, descriptive discipline, if you think about, say, economics, asking decision theories, okay, tell me how people behave, then, okay, you have one model, you could have another, you could have some generalization, some alternatives, but at some point there's some limited appetite because people can't go back and change their models all the time. By contrast, when you talk about how people, real decision makers, make decisions, okay, if you teach MBAs, and the point is that I will try to help you make decisions that you like better, then there's more room for a proliferation of models because different people, different decision makers, different organizations are going to, might find different models to their liking. So in this sense, there's more room for that. HEC Breakthroughs. A knowledge at HEC Podcast. Itzhak Gilboa, you also work on the definition of probability, notions of rationality, as you said, non-Bayesian decision models and, and related issues. These are often highly complex, uh, esoteric fields. How do you attempt, uh, you and uh, your colleagues, to uh, bring them closer to the layman and non-specialist? 
Well, here I could start with an example that could matter to people. And uh, let's say a year ago, I would uh, could ask you what the probability of a war between Russia and Ukraine. Right now, I guess that we all know the answer. But something that people relate to. And then in this particular case, I would say it's difficult to put a number on that. But think about it for a second. Uh, your prime minister is now making decisions based on this. And do you want them to plug in some number just because that's their intuition? Or And this way I try to explain, well, we do have a real problem with quantifying uncertainty. And now, okay, let's try to see what are the alternatives. And then there are different models and some of them are more or less um, sophisticated mathematically. Then we can go into mathematical arguments about what's good or less attractive in this model or that model. So then, then it starts depending on the, um, how much time you have and, and the level of sophistication. But the questions are very real. And again, it's also true when people make decisions about their own investment, whether on their own careers, um, personal decisions. Uncertainty is everywhere, and we are decision-making animals. Uh, that's what we do most of the time. Your decision theory conferences, uh, shortened to DT, uh, have been going on and expanding uh, over the years. And at the same time, you work also, you collaborate with colleagues here at HEC Paris, you recently, um, 2018, brought out uh, a paper with uh, Olivier Siboni and uh, Maria Rousseau. Tell us about how you work w with them and what that focus uh, in this paper was. So uh, that particular paper was a relatively popular uh, piece, something that's ac accessible to uh, lay people, that would explain the difficulties with um, finding a particular model and uh, using probabilities or not, or maybe not even thinking in terms of scenarios, but more in terms of cases, past cases. And the main message we're trying to convey there is that decision theory is useful also when it doesn't give you the answer. Because what happens is that there are some cases that are probably what the founding fathers had in mind, in which you give me a problem and I say, wonderful, I know how to solve it, I have the data, Okay, so it could be Google Maps or Waze or something like that. And they tell me, I want to get from point A to point B. And they say, that's good because I have the map already on the computer. And I have some real online data on traffic. And I know how to compute in the shortest path. I mean, we have algorithms to do it. And fine, this is the answer. You should now turn left and then after 50 meters turn right. Um, and there's no point for you to argue because, you know, it's been solved. There's an, another range of problems in which uh, we don't have the answer, okay, because there's lots of uncertainty and not enough data. So, that, for instance, if, if you and we talk about the probabilities of war, I'd say, who knows? You know, we've had lots of wars, but each one of them is very unique and special. And moreover, they are uh, causally intertwined in the sense that I cannot use the past data just as a way to project into the future. I have to take into account the fact that one war can cause another or vice versa, maybe because of a failure, another attempt would not be made or things of this nature. So there's room for lots of, of causal theories and I don't have the ability to experiment. Okay. But it doesn't mean that you should only rely on intuition because we do know from the works of you know Kahneman, Tversky and their followers, etc., that intuition can be quite misleading and it could lead you astray and could do things that you would find silly. You would look at them and say, wow, I should have done better. 
So this means that there is room for decision theory not necessarily as the tool that gives you the one correct answer, but as something that is used for a dialogue. So there would be a dialogue between the decision maker and the decision theorist in which you could try to see what decision the decision maker likes to make. So one end of it would be very simple. The dialogue is that you tell me as a decision maker, you tell me what the problem is, I put it on the computer, I send it back. On the other hand, you tell me, look, I mean, there's some decision here in politics. What do you know? And I say, right, I don't know anything. But tell me what you want to do. You are the smart person. You are the politician. You are the elected leader. Once you know what you're going to do, just a minute before you actually do it, let's sit down and try to justify it with the tools of decision theory. The very use of formal models can help us you know, be sort of immune against framing effects or things like this. The fact that if we use models of uncertainty, we can avoid this kind of mistake or that kind of mistake. So I'm not going to tell you that my model would give you the answer. But maybe in the course of a dialogue, when we try to even post hoc, so to speak, justify your decision, you might see that there were some errors in your reasoning or some things that you could do better. And in between, there could be things that are more like a dialogue. So I believe that there's room for decision theory in that. And to me, it's important to say it because I think that people are tempted to try not to think about it. Uh, and the other message is that let's make sure that we have sufficiently broad range of decision theories that different decision makers could relate to them. Let's not be too dogmatic as the decision theorists that says, oh, I know this is the way how to think about it. And then you could look at me and say, but it doesn't really fit my problem. So thank you. Hello, I'm Craig, and this is Crash Course Government and Politics. And today we're going to look at why Congress acts the way it does. More specifically, we're going to try to figure out as much as we can without being mind readers, the factors that influence congressmen when they make decisions. Then after that, we'll be mind readers, and then we'll, we'll see if we were right. This should be a welcome change of pace from the last couple episodes where we delved into the gory details of how Congress works. Or is supposed to work, anyway. <laughs> it's like, what about the future? What are you really excited about in terms of your research, developing it, and in which direction? So mostly it's about decision theory in various ways. So one uh, interesting direction is to use various models that were suggested in machine learning as models of how people think. So I don't mean just to find better prediction techniques, which is something that's actually we start to see in, in economics, but also to think of it as maybe if uh, some of these things do have some intuitive appeal, we could think of them as uh, a models of how people actually think. Uh, so that's one direction in order to better understand um, how people actually make decisions and also to have models that decision makers might relate to more easily. Uh, there are questions that have to do with uh, values. People care about various things from, of course, the environment and other things. How does these, do these affect decision making? This thing also has a social aspect because some of it is a matter of uh, you know the sociology of it, and questions of meaning and the relationship to language. Okay, so some of our things are some of the decisions don't just involve quantities as we like to think of in economics, but have to do with words and the meaning we attach to words, and how these interact with economic decisions is another topic I find fascinating. 
Perhaps a, a final word about your interaction with students uh, here and their approach, this generation's approach towards decision theory. They've grown up in a different culture to, to you. You're born in 1963. Uh, do you find that uh, they're bringing interesting angles that uh, reflect their upbringing and, I don't know, internet and the smartphone revolution, which could actually enter the world of decision theory? I think it translates to there are many gaps in, in terms of the culture and where I feel old, and I can't mention examples that used to work. You know, just to take a trivial example, I used to, in the context of something half-jokingly, tell people that they don't need to take sugar in their coffee because after two weeks it tastes better without sugar. turns out that no one does these days. <laughs> it's a new generation, sugar-free generation. So uh, some of the examples have to be updated and, uh, and so on. But the basic concepts, I think, are still there. And uh, the main variation would be you know, between undergraduate, master and PhD students uh, and this hasn't changed so much in my lifetime uh, in the sense that undergraduates are more like what you expect uh, normal people to be uh, master students are indoctrinated in certain ways, PhD students come with a different indoctrination and in this sense I don't see a huge difference but the example should definitely be updated <laughs> It's Gilboa, thank you very much Thank you, thank you very much Itzhak Gilboa, HEC Professor of Economics and Decision Sciences. And as we said at the start, he is co-organizing the 2023 DT, an annual workshop in central Paris, which deals with decision sciences. This year, there are 34 invited speakers for the three-day event that starts on July the 10th. Well, that's it for this month. To get further insights into the works of some of HEC's other research academics, why not subscribe to our monthly newsletter? With the Knowledge Review, you can read about the impact our professors are having in economic and societal fields that touch us all. Oh, and if you have any comments or questions, feel free to drop them off at browned at hec.fr. That's browned in one word at hec.fr. Until next time, goodbye.